and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax, and I'm and, sorry for the uh, apocalypse happening right outside my window at that at this exact moment. It's happening outside everybody's window, David. Uh, and sometimes the call is coming from inside the house. I'll say yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, and and thank you for. Uh, I don't know where I am in the intro. So how's it going, David? I'm good. Are you? Should, do you want to start over? No, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, uh, it's uh, yeah. It's it's going well. Um, and we have a, a guest who will uh, I think go ahead and introduce now, right? Um, yeah. Because it's the first. This has become. I'm not sure how many years we've been doing this, but it's become a tradition. The first episode of the new year. Um, or I guess the first episode recorded in the new year, right? Because our last yes. episode yes. posted in 2022, but the first episode we record in the new year is, uh, kind of on the top 10 films as decreed by Battleship Retention's editor at large, Scott Nye. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> this, this really does have the feel right now of a zoom work meeting where you can tell the other person is like doing something else. Well, I'm trying to get my little list up here, you know, <laughs> oh, I got okay. all this content for the people. So I got a, I'm switching browsers. I'm approving that it's really me with two factor authentication. Sure. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Um, I've been that guy in work meetings and I know that like there are people like there are times I'm so like, uh, sometimes like there's a work meeting going on and I'll be like, catching up on work and I'll be emailing something that I, someone that I know is in the meeting with me about something else. Yes. <laughs> but it's just, oh. but it's just like, I got to get this done. <laughs> yeah. I, sure. I, uh, <clears throat> I occasionally will have like departmental meetings. Um, but the problem with a departmental meeting, at least as far as uh, one of the schools that I, that I teach it, it's not just the cinema, cinema department. It's like the entire humanities department. And so I really only need to be there for probably 10 to 15 minutes. If that, okay. uh, the meeting is about two hours and though I'm getting paid for the whole two hours, um, it's just like, wow, I really, I feel like I shouldn't be hearing this. I'm feeling like I, I'm hearing like the behind the scenes of what they're talking about over in yeah. uh, dance. Um, but yeah. And because you are not required in these meetings to have your camera on, Beautiful. Now we're talking. <laughs> so like I mute myself, I turn my camera off. I, I keep the earbuds in just in case, but yeah, I, I will do emails. Sometimes I'll just play a game on my phone. Don't tell anybody uh, <laughs> that I do that. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if any of your, uh, the people you answer to listen to this podcast. Um, I know that at least one of my bosses does listen to this podcast, but I also feel like I'm not going to get in trouble for copying to doing more work like exactly <laughs> yes working yes. while working uh, it's probably not gonna like come back to bite me um anyway um okay hopefully we've vamped long enough that uh scott has been able to get his affairs in order but i also first before we get into the 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 the, the episode and, and, and the topic uh which i've already spoiled usually i wait till after we get into it to say what the topic is but anyway uh i we do want to acknowledge that as of uh, today uh the day of this recording um peter Bog peter bogdanovich has passed away yeah um and i feel like uh my as i mean this is kind of like morbid but off like uh, as our our profile episodes for the past few years have turned into like tributes you know and and uh uh retrospectives and things like that uh so sometimes when a major figure dies i think like we should do an episode about that my, my 
my first reaction when I heard that Peter Bogdanovich died was I was like, have we done a Peter Bogdanovich episode? I feel like we've talked about his movies, uh, uh, especially our personal favorites of, of his movies being like, was a doc last picture show and probably cats meow. Um, so often in this podcast that I actually had to look to make sure we hadn't already done a Bogdanovich profile, uh, episode. Um, and I think that speaks to how uh, much his work uh, meant to us, not just, uh, I mean, I'm mean, here. I am listing off his directorial efforts, but he was also a, uh, you know, he was a writer. He was also an actor mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of things, especially, I mean, you know, Natalie and I are always in the process of rewatching the Sopranos. So yeah. um, we've seen him as Elliot Kupferberg as recently as uh, uh, um, this, uh, just a few, few days ago. Uh, and uh, I feel like that his tendency to direct, you know, narrative films, direct documentaries to show up as a, a, a writer of, books as well as um screenplays and and to pop up in other other people's things to to devote so much of his time to the other side of the wind seeing the light of day like i think it really speaks to not just we can talk and we probably will do a profile on him at some point in which we will talk about his skills as a filmmaker but i think as a as a champion of cinema, as a devotee of cinema, and as a collaborator, uh, I think it really, it, uh, those are the things that I think of when I, when I think of him as someone who was willing to, to, to pitch in and show up and advocate and do what he could for great movies, whether they were his or someone else's and great TV, like the Sopranos. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think, uh, yeah, there are a number of, uh, films of his that I really love. I don't, I don't remember if you mentioned paper moon. That's one that I really oh, yeah, enjoy as well. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. Noises off was a huge, Oh yeah. so like teenage, like theater teen, sure. <laughs> like when I was a theater teen, noises off was a big favorite. I haven't seen it in over 20 years, but I'm sure, I'm sure it holds up. It's, uh, it's I imagine it probably does. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of, uh, maybe my favorite John Ritter performance, which is saying something hmm that's that is tough that's really tough because i do love him in bad in bad santa but yeah. i but i love him in sling blade as well yeah. he's a yeah. great great actor but uh but and that's the other thing is you mentioned uh bogdanovich as an actor and you know we think of him as being our age you know when we see something like the sopranos like oh he's sort of this monotone kind of guy you go back and watch um the other side of the wind and he's great like he's this young guy and he has weight he has like a lot of energy and you really get a strong sense of his character like he really it's so interesting to think that he could have gone that way almost exclusively and probably done okay as a comedic actor um and then well, I would, if, if you're talking about his performance as Elliot Kupferberg on the <gasps> Sopranos as anything other than comedic you're watching yeah, yeah. different shows yeah <laughs> And I think that also speaks to his ability, again, as an actor, and probably because he's a director, he's able to see, okay, how do I read on screen? Mm, I think I got it. I read boring and monotone uh, and self-absorbed a little bit. And uh, yeah, uh, but then obviously being the the Wells fan that I am, I did read his uh, 
I read this is Orson Welles, uh, but then I, which is like interviews with, with him and, and with Bogdanovich and Wells and stuff. Um, but then I also read his very long essay in response to Pauline Kael's raising Kane. And it is this full throated defense, not merely of yes, Orson Welles, someone that he's friends with, but it's like, Oh, well you're, it, fr- it clearly frustrated him to see someone take such a sloppy uh, approach to like film scholarship it's not merely her opinion. That's fine, but it's her like printing rumors and basically as fact. And then he goes and does the research that she didn't. And it really, you can get a sense of like righteous indignation, but still a certain degree of civility. And yes, admittedly, there's occasionally a moment of cattiness, but whatever it's, it's against Pauline kale. She could be pretty catty herself. So, um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think in many ways, he just w- was devoted to film as an art form, whether it be as a critic, as a director, as an actor, just, he was always celebrating film and it was really, uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that he's gone. Yeah. He's really one of, I think the only American director I can think of who took up like the French new wave model of, okay, I'm going to write criticism, then I'm going to go into film, but I'll keep writing criticism. I mean, I'm looking at his, works list and he wrote over a dozen books participated in over a dozen commentary tracks on movies that weren't his at all plus paid you know multiple oscar nominated and winning films um yeah i mean it's an astounding career and i I will say if you guys uh want a guest on any future profile of him certainly uh keep all scott in mind we will presumptuous of you but yeah Um, (laughs) my big the the um some of the uh because in in preparation, if we do a profile, I'll I will I want to watch a lot of the films that I haven't seen. A lot of the big ones aren't stream. A lot of the big ones I haven't seen at least aren't streaming. Mask is not anywhere. Texas Phil's not anywhere, and they all laughed is not anywhere. I, mm. I don't know. Uh, well, sure. If you view streaming as the be all end all of film, uh, is there any other? And- is there anything else? Well, I could. I mean, if I could, I don't want to. I, I I guess I'm uh, opposed to like. I don't like blind buying, so I don't want to buy. I don't like the idea of buying something I haven't seen. If I can rent it from the library on the on a disc, I will do that. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I don't know. And maybe, and I, this is like bit me before. You know, when I, um, when we did that Christopher Plummer episode, there's like a, um, there's a, uh, a HBO like made for TV movie like Walter Winchell biopic that Christopher Plummer. He doesn't play Winchell; he plays somebody else in it. But I was like, oh, it's not streaming anywhere. I could also buy a DVD for a dollar fifty on the internet. But I just like on principle, I don't like to blind buy stuff. Maybe I'll have to like break that rule for yeah, they all left. You buy, you take it down to Amoeba next time you're there. there you one go. and okay. done. Uh, well, before we move on, I do want to share my one uh, Bogdanovich in the wild story that I have uh, many summers ago. Natalie and I were in line uh, in the courtyard outside the Billy Wilder Theater for a uh, a, a screening of So This Is Paris um, with live accompaniment. And uh, Peter Bogdanovich, I turned around, Natalie and I were talking, I turned around and Peter Bogdanovich is standing right behind me, ascot and everything. You know, it's also, I mentioned summer on purpose because it's literally like, it's like 105 degrees this day. And so we're waiting, like they haven't opened the box office yet. And at one point I just see Peter Berlin just walk past me, just walk into the lobby, which is not officially open, but I'm guessing he decided I'm Peter fucking Bogdanovich and I'm 75 <laughs> years old and then standing around in this heat. Uh, so he just walked in and waited inside when they hadn't let anybody in. It's like, oh, my neckerchief is uh, soaked with sweat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is he going short sleeve, Ascot? 
Yeah, <laughs> I think he had a jacket. I think he had a jacket. Yeah. Classy. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, I also, I guess we should mention that uh, Sundance in person was canceled. I just, I just saw that. And yeah. I, and I, uh, is that cause you were, were you both going to go? I forget. No, I haven't gotten years. I haven't been able to. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously I was, I mean, I was going to go in the sense that I had lodging arranged and a flight and um transportation to and from the salt lake city airport to park city i had everything in place i was already considering not going because of omicron anyway so uh sundance kind of like made the decision for me um and luckily i was able to get uh well nothing's come through yet but i'm told i'll be able to get refunds on everything but which i mean Tyler Battleship Pretension will be refunded because Battleship Pretension paid for all that stuff. Oh, yes, uh, yes. You'll get a flight credit and you'll like it. <laughs> I, they said, they said, uh, they said it'll be a, a ah. um, uh, so yeah, not that I look, I don't work for JetBlue or anything, but JetBlue said I could get a refund. If that comes through good for JetBlue. Uh, anyway, so uh, let's, uh, before we move on, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Um, I will say, uh, I, I always like hesitate. What am I going to talk about? Um that I listen to what I've been listening to. Uh, this feels stupid because sometimes, so I have like an ongoing playlist on Spotify that like, as I hear about new music or as something comes up, I add to it. And so, but because of like the holidays, I wasn't spending as much time listening. Like at, I do it at, at work. So I'm kind of, my playlist is backlog. So I'm listening to stuff that I put on my playlist in like mid December, which is weird. Like I was exercising this morning and suddenly like I'm listening to Bing Crosby ask, do you hear what I hear? And I'm like, this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is too late. But uh, I, I say all this to point out that I listened um, yesterday and today I listened to a lot of songs by Draco, the ruler, the rapper who uh, was killed on December. It was like 19th or, or, or something shortly before Christmas killed um, like backstage at a festival here in, oh in, in Los Angeles. It's uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, um, but uh, he was a sort of uh, no one else really sounded like him as a, you know, not that the, there's not like that East coast, West coast thing like there was when we were kids, but as like an LA rapper, he was one of the, like, uh, I think most respected and most exciting names, um, in rap in, in, in the city. So, uh, it's very sad to have, um, lost him when he was, uh, really, I think starting to blow up outside of people who know a lot about rap, like in more mainstream, like crossover, uh, I mean, this, this festival was like, had Snoop Dogg on it and stuff. Snoop Dogg didn't perform because they stopped the festival after, uh, after Draco, um, was, was murdered, but, um, very sad. Uh, but it did sound great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds and they're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension to check out, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. 
Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back, and let's get into it, shall we? Scott, take it away. You're going to do your... uh, (laughs) Top your your best films of the year, right? Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna just turn my screen off and my mic off. Don't don't. <laughs> yeah, I'm still totally paying attention. <laughs> uh, yeah. So usually get into uh, starting at the worst of the year. I, I think I'm gonna abstain from that this year, mainly because I uh, the past year has been so rough for the movies. The past two years, really. Not in terms of quality of content, as the kids like to term it, but in terms of just the infrastructure of their future existence. Um, You know, when I look at thinking about like what is the worst film of the year, I try to think about movies that I really hated sitting through and I really regretted like the time and effort and minutes of my life feeling like years draining away from it. Um, but I didn't have that experience this year. I was genuinely, uh, glad to be watching, uh, even some of the lesser films this year. So I, I, I found it hard to really hate anything. So I'll move right to, uh, the overrated. I'll, I'll send you a list. Don't okay. You great. Worry. I mean, I did, I, I am getting better about filtering, filtering out movies. I yeah. know I don't want to see, I think I used to just go see movies, you know, I'll see whatever, but, uh, increasingly. And it, it's also like, I don't want to pick on, you know, the few small movies I saw that were really dreadful. Yeah. That's um, the thing with me. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I still see a lot of crap because I think I still take more like, yeah, I review more stuff and, and, and like take more, uh, bum assignments, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, I definitely have some, but we'll get to mine in a couple months. Yeah. I mean, I usually look for like big blockbuster stuff. I hated or Oscar buzzy stuff that was uh, dreadful, but no, no real huge regrets this year. So that's okay with me. Um, I'll move right into the overrated category, which. Um, I film that I good, maybe not as good as, you know, I have heard or the general impression seems to be uh, going with an. David, do you have a question? No, sorry. You froze up for a second. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Shoot. Are no, you still hearing I, me? Okay. It yeah, probably yeah, recorded fine. fine. It usually okay. does. Yes, it usually does. All right. Uh, so overrated pick um, going with James Wan's Malignant, which uh, I think is a good deal of fun for. So everyone was talking about it. They're like, all right, James Wan has lost his shit. Dude's cashing in his checks after making WB billions of dollars. He is, uh, you know, doing the one for me. The last 30 minutes are absolutely crazy. And most of this film is pretty absolutely crazy and a great, terrific, I think, very fruitful waste of studio resources in terms of like <laughs> building whole sets just to accomplish single shots, you know, all that stuff that like Brian De Palma made his career on and which increasingly, you know, people are less and less willing to pay for. But here he's really milking it for everything it's worth. Um, and there's a lot of really fun filmmaking, I think, especially the first two thirds. Uh, then there's this whole like third act revelation, which is indeed completely batshit insane. And one of the least expected and possibly like most deranged uh, story beats I've seen in a mainstream movie in a while, but the filmmaking itself kind of deteriorates after that and turns into, starts looking cheap. And the 
for so much of the movie, I was like, this does not look like a cheap movie. They're really mm. going out for it. Um, but then it just kind of deteriorates into simple, like chase films and simple fight stuff. And the last act where the story was ramping up into complete insanity, the filmmaking was uh, ramping down into uh, pretty tepid VOD style stuff. Ah. Uh, so I came away feeling it was a little overrated. Um, for my underrated pick this year, uh, I'm going with Tom McCarthy's Stillwater, which I understand people's objections to it. If you're like taking Amanda Knox's side, for example, I do probably even agree that it's maybe exploitative of uh, her story because it's essentially it's a story of a college age girl who goes to jail um, for allegedly killing her roommate. She claims she didn't do it, et cetera, et cetera. Very much bears the broad uh, similarity to the Amanda Knox story. Um, so if people are concerned with that, I get it. If people are concerned with the fact that it sympathizes with what is clearly a Trump supporter in this the year of our Lord 2021. Uh, I understand uh, there's some hesitancy around that. I'm saying for me, in terms of the stuff I get off on, which is like deeply conflicted protagonist um, who keeps making life worse for himself, super ace performance by Matt Damon, and an ending that I think rather than sympathize necessarily with him shows the way that, you know, certain people maybe have certain uh, inclinations towards certain fascist figures end up digging themselves a hole and um, in their efforts to strong arm their way into a better life or to fix their problems are in fact making things worse for themselves and a great deal of others. Um, so I found it a really uh, morally complex and really conflicted and really refreshing and super engaging film. And uh, it's a shame that um, it's been kind of passed aside for one reason or another. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I wish I'd, I wish I'd seen, um, malignant or Stillwater. Um, they're it's, both on my, on my to watch list. I probably, I'm going to follow the hype and put malignant a little higher on my, on my to watch list before we sure. get to our top 10, but Stillwater is on my to watch list, but I have the longest to watch list I've ever made, uh, in like the days leading up the months leading up to our top 10. So I'm not going to get to all this stuff. So it's I'm also a, uh, long as hell film. It's almost two and a half hours. It's it's so interesting because and I guess maybe it just speaks to and this is something David has said that like just operating dif uh, operating different parts of the Internet. Like, I don't think I haven't seen Malignant, but I don't think of it as like rated highly at all. Like a lot of people went like whether on Facebook or Twitter, not that I'm a part of, of film Twitter or anything like that. But like when it came out, so many people, they said it was crazy. Some people uh, in an admiring kind of way, but most people were like, this thing is, a, is just a mess. This thing is like, they're like, I think of it as a film that is not well-regarded. Yeah. I double checked and it has mostly positive reviews. Okay. Um, and at least the people I, you know, the feed I've curated over the years, certainly very enthusiastic about it. <laughs> um, I like that you folded your hands in front of your face as you said that because it was very super villain-esque. Well, like, I was, the feed that I've curated over time by killing the people I disagree with. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, sorry. I was mostly on. trying to hide a burp, but I'm glad it uh, <laughs> came across. Most, as, uh, most Blofeld well, often was trying to, uh, oh, yeah, to yeah. hide a burp. You gotta remain intimidating when you're uh, picking on James Bond. <laughs> Um, and then I, I always like to pick out some honorable mentions stuff that I wouldn't Hopefully, really 
something I've seen. I feel bad. Like, Oh, there's a, there's a couple in here you've seen for sure. Um, I usually like to pick out a handful of films that I wouldn't really consider for my top 10 for one reason or another, but were still notable and effective. And in this case, I went with five films that are kind of very much tackling internet life and how I'd say the long-term effects of internet on society, on people's psychology, on the ways that we kind of form our self-impressions and uh, in some ways, how much easier it's been to kind of control independent thought through like the repetition of pervasive media that uh, goes on through the internet. I think these are necessarily messy films. You know, they're tackling what is a very present and um, contemporary subject and which we are not at all resolved on, you know, I mean, part of my frustration sometimes period pieces, it feels like filmmakers are just trying to look for something they can see at whole. Um, whereas in a contemporary film, you know, they're really trying to wrestle with the moment and they might not get it right. They might get it wrong. Really time will be the tell. So these are films that could very well, you know, be considered some of the best of the year later on. Um, most notably, I picked out um, The Scary of 61st, which is a sort of hipster horror film that's completely insane and weird and amateurish and maybe bad or maybe great. I really couldn't tell you for sure, but is really, uh, really fresh and invigorating in that same vein. Same vein as that. Uh, uh, that's, that one's on my to watch list somewhere in between Malignant and Stillwater. <laughs> Fair enough. It is much shorter than both of those. So yeah, okay. it's got that going for it. Uh, also PVT chat, which uh, didn't get a ton of notice was about um, it stars Julia Fox as sort of a cam girl and a man who uh, relentlessly pursues her and is deeply uncomfortable. Um, more famously, I think more people are familiar with bad luck banging or loony porn, right. um, which yeah. is this year's great COVID movie. <laughs> Um, in addition to being a reflection on general uh, fascist tendencies worldwide, um, a glitch in the matrix by a friend of the show, Rodney Asher. Um, and I think we talked about it on our best of the year so far episode. Yeah. It was on my I top so, five yeah. of the year so far. Okay. Yeah. Then listeners are probably at least familiar with that, but yes, super interesting documentary. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but it's uh, really invested in the subject. Do you really think have. that's weird? I always <laughs> agree with everything Rodney puts in his documentaries. <laughs> But I don't know. I mean, agree with, are you saying agree with the movie? Cause I don't know that the movie in my, my experience of the movie is not that it really settles on a, on a point of view. It presents a lot of other people, but I, but I, I felt like it was letting you make up your mind. I don't, I don't know. I can disagree with the people in the movie. I don't know what the movie had set. I don't know if the movie landed on. No, that's fair. Uh, agree with interpretation. Was, agree with those wrong word. I think there's a sense in which the movie is more for people who don't have a, pretty good familiarity with a simulation theory in general. And so there was a lot of the movie is like, yep, I know let's next point. Keep going. <laughs> um, so that, that's probably more what I meant. Um, and then finally, uh, Lana Wachowski's the matrix Resurre- resurrections, which is, uh, just a stellar piece of filmmaking all around, um, super wild, super shooting for the fences. And it's great to see that kind of both ambition and lack of refinement in a studio film that feels like it really just came from a single person. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I haven't seen, like I said, I haven't seen Logan yet, but I was thinking about matrix resurrections when you were talking about uh, a director just spending the studio's money, you know, and that's, uh, that's, it, it feels like, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's Lana, not Lily, right. Who directed yeah. it? Lana. Yeah. Just, uh, uh, you know, making a matrix film, but also trading off the matrix, uh, uh, legacy, which I'm sure will be the name of some movie at some point, um, to get to play in a very, very expensive and big, uh, 
sandbox. Well, and I think it really gets at, like I said, kind of the way corporations view uh, internet access as a way to kind of control the populace. I think there's a lot that uh, gets said by, I guess I shouldn't feel too much, but one of the villainous characters about um, the way they're using the matrix to kind of control people and how they don't really need the same kind of illusions as before. They just need like an outlet for people. Yeah, there are, uh, I, I could talk about, Two of the movies you mentioned and one you haven't mentioned yet, but might be in your top 10. Um, I keep thinking of movies that are better than don't look up <laughs> in terms of like speaking to our moment, sure, you know, yeah. and yeah, bad luck banging um, is, is definitely a much uh, better, like angrier and, but less like self congratulatory uh uh look at the sort of uh, devolution of uh public uh conversations <laughs> um and uh and then there's another one that i uh i won't i'm not gonna mention it because it might be in your top 10 yeah i mean bad luck banging certainly takes it to the point where like even the anger is ridiculous yeah. um the last like few minutes of that film are completely like so fun alienating to everybody including maybe the filmmaker themselves it's like yeah i can't imagine him watching that back and be like ah yes nailed it well yeah after after the movie ropes him in with the opening few minutes well sure yeah <laughs> but i'm saying that's like kind of like i think but it's just setting up the kind of movie porn. it opens be, with porn just so you know yeah, it opens with ace <laughs> um i think that's more like pointedly confrontational in terms of like this is the kind of movie it is this is what we're talking about deal with it or not whereas the ending is like just letting it rip and just almost yeah. embarrassing himself in terms of how understandably angry he is about it all. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I really loved that movie. Expect to hear more about that in our coming months of coverage. Right on. <laughs> um, all right. So I think that's all the miscellany I wanted to get out of the way before you get into the top 10 itself. Um, yeah. Have a lot of stuff that I considered for the number 10 spot. I was literally trading out two films in this spot all day today. Um, so by the time I post the published version of this list, you know, who knows might change by that. Um, but for now, for today, for tonight, um, I'm saying number 10 is Francois Ozon summer of 85. Um, I've been a big old fan of Francois Ozon for past 10 years. I still need to catch up with a lot of his earlier work, but I think he's really one of the weirdly least sung and fine finest filmmakers working today who takes on a ton of genres i think I mean, part of his problem might be that he works too much um he's made like 19 films over the past 20 years or something like that um and all of them in different genres you know there's not a lot of consistency that people tend to look for and hope for in terms of like auteurist work um but this i think is really is at least the best film of his that i've seen it's about um a young boy about 16 who meets another boy a couple of years older than him um one summer in uh, 1985. Fun fact about that, uh, Francois Ozone adapted this from a novel that was published in 1982. He updated it to be in 1984 when he was 16 to mirror his protagonist and then wanted to use a song by The Cure, but they were like, no, you can't use that. That song didn't come out until 1985. So he's like, well, I guess I'll set it in 1985. <laughs> um, wow. So that's why it takes place then because he wanted to use this one song and you know, it's, it's a good song. I, I get it. Um, and so, yeah, these two boys meet, start to form a sort of relationship and uh, sexual relationship and fall into a sort of kind of love. It has very much the auspices of, you know, a call me by your name. You know, I think a lot of the aesthetic choices draw that association pretty cleanly. 
But at the same time, this is a much less tender relationship between the two of them. It's much more combative and much more uncertain. And all of which gets to a place where by the time it does become very tender, it's much less expected. And the way in which it takes on kind of that earnestness is, I mean, it's a very Francois's own choice, even though it's adapted straight from the novel, I can see why he attached himself to it. Um, but it, it's a very kind of subversive look that really connects. Uh, this is really taken from an interview I read with him, but it really connects the issue of gayness in the eighties with its direct connection to death with the rise of AIDS. You know, the film doesn't directly tackle AIDS, but it, it ties the two together in a way um, uh, homosexuality and death in a way that was very pertinent, you know, in the eighties in a way that isn't as much today. And it also carries with it a certain, uh, not that it like is at all homophobic or at all like damning of the kids, but it, it uh, recognizes that for the 1980s, any sort of homosexuality was very taboo. Um, I think a lot of filmmakers today, when they make gay films, it's very much like a post, um, I don't know, what would you say? Like post gay marriage equality, love is love, everyone's equal kind of thing. But to go Post back to Will this, and Grace. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> to go back to this time when, um, you know, a lot of people felt bad for being gay. Uh, and it's not that the characters necessarily for them feel guilt, but they feel a certain uh, place in society that is removed from all others. Some of this is played for comedy. You know, their parents keep making up excuses like they're fighting over some girl when really they're fighting over each other. Um, and so there's a certain like, blindness that people have to the fact that they even could be gay, which is kind of amusing. Um, but yeah, I, really impressive, really beautifully shot film. Um, and yeah, that's my number 10. Uh, yeah. I, I, I loved it too. Obviously by my rules, it's a 2020 uh, film, but I uh, like you have long been a Francois Ozon um, uh, fan going back to uh, under the sand from. All right. 19, I guess that's 1999, but I probably would have, no, that's 2000. Maybe I saw it in 2000, um, in the theater when I was like still very like young and new to like seeing current world cinema in a, in a theater and under, under the sand, uh, blew me away. But then it'll also, it would always be swimming pool, uh, for me as the, uh, the, the big one and not to, I used to have a swimming pool t-shirt that I got as a video store manager. <laughs> <laughs> it, said, it said swimming pool, like on DVD and VHS on whatever date. Uh, and I used to sleep in it. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I, I also really loved summer of 85. Um, and, uh, I think like the comment by your name references are not references, but the similarity is like the film's, Ozone can't not be a, aware of. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a very that. postmodern director in general, yeah. so it's, uh, I think, a welcome comparison. He also, um, the movie was also, I can't remember if you said this, but it was shot on 16 millimeter film. Yeah. Um, now I saw it, you know, on a screener, and I have since got the the Blu-ray, which I haven't watched yet. Uh, but it that um, that that texture feels like a connection to the past in a, in a way, like for a for a period film. Yeah, there's been a real rise of shooting period pieces on 16 over the past decade, and I am uh, deeply in favor of it. Always yeah. looks good. Okay. All right. Uh, number nine is Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter, um, which I wasn't really expecting to necessarily love. I mean, I really like Maggie Gyllenhaal as an actor. I uh, had no reason to expect her directorial debut would be anything less than stellar. But at the same time, I think I share your guys' suspicion about actors turned directors. Um, and I think just with debut features in general, I 
notice that they tend to focus a lot of energy on a couple of actors and anyone else who floats to the film tends to feel like they're just like, yeah, just say the lines. You'll be fine. Um, but here she really invests like every corner of the frame with a lot of life, um, a lot of texture to it. Uh, it's about a woman who goes on vacation and played by Olivia Coleman goes on vacation, meets a family um, who multi-generational family they're out there kind of on a family trip it's suggested at least i got the impression that they have some ties to uh some sort of like organized crime situation um but for the most part she just sees in each of them kind of different phases of her life and different avenues she could have gone down different avenues she is glad she didn't go down um especially surrounding the issue of motherhood and as we find out through flashbacks um olivia coleman's character is played by jesse buckley in those flashbacks um I should her name Lita is her name. Uh, Lita felt a lot of uh, regret about being a mother and uh, a lot of regret. She handled the first few years of her children's lives, um, and you can understand why. This is not a film that sentimentalizes uh, parenthood at all. It looks like complete hell from top to bottom. Kids are always screaming anytime she's trying to do the slightest thing, and she's trying to build an uh, academic career at the same time as raising her kids and they're constantly interrupting it. She can't get any space to herself because her husband uh, assumes that she'll just do all the work with the kids and she has no room to kind of grow into her own person. And the way the flashbacks are handled and especially the way I think the present stuff is handled. I, I didn't have to look at the book, which of course Netflix and their many swag boxes throughout the years sent the novel along with their uh, lost daughter box. Um, I didn't have to look at the novel to guess that it was written in the first person. Maggie Gyllenhaal does such an exceptional job of giving us a point of view without doing any sort of voiceover without having these shots uh, narrated in any way or clarified in any way. You can just see by the way that Olivia Coleman is seeing them through our vision of it through the camera. You can see how she's thinking about these people. And even if you can't necessarily verbalize it in a way, this is really the most refreshing thing about it is there's no like dictation about how specifically that's being read. You can just tell it's coming from a personal perspective. That's maybe a little bit anxious, a little bit paranoid, um, a little bit judgmental, but also a little bit envious. Um, there's a lot of really mixed emotions going on with um, some camera work that, you know, on paper w could seem very scattered. It's all kind of handheld and uh, just catching moments, stray moments here and there. But the way it's kind of built together in the editing, it was edited by actually by the guy who'd done most of Todd Haynes' films, including, I think, pertinent to this, uh, Carol and Mildred Pierce, other films about motherhood, among other things. Um, and yeah, I mean, the way it all just comes together is really exceptional. I think this is as good as, as Olivia Coleman's performances as I've ever seen. Definitely the same for Jesse Buckley and Dakota Johnson, um, who plays one of the family members. And yeah, I was just completely enraptured by it and really refreshed to see this kind of point of view taken where it's not all about how great parenthood is, how valuable motherhood is in terms of a woman's life, how conflicted it is about all the different things people and women especially want with their lives. Uh, a couple of things, um, weirdly kind of relating to what we were saying about, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Peter Bogdanovich being funny on the Sopranos. The Lost Outer is not a comedy, but Olivia Coleman is such a funny actress that I often found myself laughing at some of her, like, sure. uh, uh, the way she acts things out or, or, or certain, uh, line readings. But what I also, what I really wanted to get into is, um, you talked about her, the movie, like being in the first person and her point of view and the way that she can be judgmental. And I think she can definitely be uh, judgmental. I think the movie sympathizes with her from her point of view, but also I don't think the movie feels as judgmental 
towards these people no, as, not at as all. she does. And I, and I, and I liked that given that, so Lita often comes across, you know, she can be prickly. She often comes across as something as, as someone a little bit like uh, unpleasant in, in some ways. But I also think as the intellectual surrounded by like these, you know, whatever the Greek version of like, you know, Guido's is essentially, <laughs> you know, um, like the, these uncultured, but like, you know, new money, uh, people, her judgment of them. I feel like I, I, I'm obviously, I sound like I'm being judgmental, but I think I'm, I'm doing that to kind of take on her, her, her point of view, the way that she judges these people, I think, and given the, t- the potential type of audience for a movie like the lost daughter, uh, I, I think she often comes across looking, looking worse. Um, and I- I in a way that I wonder if, uh, I, I don't know, we tend to use the, the, that phrase, like to feel seen as being like a good thing, <laughs> sure. but I think there's a bad way to feel seen. And I think that like, uh, uh, the worst, the, the, the less appealing, um, less, uh, forgiving, less humanistic qualities of Lita might make the but the, the likely audience from we like, like the lost daughter feels seen in a way that might be a little uncomfortable. You know, there's a, there's a scene in the movie in which she freaks out at a bunch of like young men who aren't being quiet in a movie theater. And that's like, Oh, but it, 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 it isn't wishful moment. Like I'm the kind of person who's like, Oh, I'd love to yell at a bunch of, yeah, right. but, she, but she just comes across looking like the crazy lady. Yes. Uh, that's how you come across <laughs> when you yell at young people in a movie theater. And then you're the one that has to leave. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I also loved the lost daughter. I'm glad I didn't read the novel because um, I've, uh, Natalie read the novel. And when I started telling her about the movie, she was like, oh, that sounds bad. I don't care. I don't Because huh. <laughs> they, because they change, uh, certain <laughs> superficial things, uh, about it. Um, uh, but then I've also seen people on Twitter who read the novel say like, I'm having trouble, uh, liking this movie as much as people, other people do. Um, but that's often been my case. If I read a novel too shortly before seeing the movie, the movie doesn't feel right to me. And it, right. t- it took me a long time to light to, to realize how good LA confidential was because I li- literally like finished reading the book and was like, all right, time to go rent the movie. And like, watch that night. I was like, what am I watching? This is not, what is this uh, horse shit? Yeah, exactly. I, um, I, I think I've mentioned before that, uh, I, one of my little side gigs is as a script consultant. And, uh, there have been instances where someone says like, Oh, I'm adapting, this book and sometimes it's like a book they wrote or or you know a, a lesser known novel or whatever and like i can send you know, like i have a, a pdf of that and like you can read that as well and i said like no 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 yeah. i don't i really don't want to <laughs> yeah that will only ruin this for me and then it's and then really it's just me saying like how close do you want to be to the novel and that's really not that's really not the point of it it's a different medium yeah, one of the interesting changes, the book is uh, by an Italian author, I think it was set in Italy. Um, it was going to be set in New Jersey, but then I, I can't remember if it was for a pandemic reason or financial reason, they couldn't get that location. And so they just, just they were like, well, Greece will work. And so they just moved the whole thing to Greece. And uh, weirdly, it totally works. It's a great little portion of Greece. All right. Okay. Uh, my number eight. So very excitingly, my number eight is the first film on this that at one point was my favorite film of the year. Um, it doesn't mean that every film after this, you know, bumped it off necessarily, but um, that just shows, I think it was a really strong year that there were yeah. enough films that eventually edged out what at one point was my favorite film of the year, um, which came 
on the second half of the year, even it was Paul Schrader's the card counter. Um, saw this opening weekend, couldn't wait for it. Was super excited for it. Um, I liked First Reformed enough, um, but it was it didn't. Maybe it's just that it's so derivative of Winter Light and me being a huge Bergman head. Um, I was a little bit like, come on, Schrader, get your own ideas. Um, I, I, but I think this film is a much stranger film, a much more aggressive one and has less kind of, you know, first reform has very explained characters who have very straightforward motivations at any given moment. Um, and you can understand moment to moment why they're reacting to what, the way they are to given situations. Uh, card counter is a little more unwieldy. It starts out with the kind of the architecture that could lend itself to very straightforward motivations where Oscar Isaac plays a compulsive gambler who's kind of using gambling as a way to at once both punish himself and um, kind of shut out his memories of being a prison guard. Um, I never know if I'm pronouncing this right. Abu Garib? Abu Ghraib? Abu Ghraib? I think it's Abu Ghraib. That's how I'm good to make um a prison guard there and his role in the ensuing scandal um that he was one of the guards you know in those famous photographs and by all means did everything that those photographs suggested and the flashbacks to those are straight up nightmares and i couldn't believe what i was seeing when uh the camera switched to that insane aesthetic and i think uh put off a number of people in the theater both times i went to see it they're all like what is happening um but i was like yes this is what i'm here for this is the strange weird paul schrader shit that i absolutely love uh, um and as the film goes on um it becomes it turns you know slightly romantic he forms this sort of relationship with tiffany haddish who plays a woman who has kind of a gambling corral, you know, she represents a financial backer who will stake um, skilled poker players to play in games and they'll get a cut of the winnings, et cetera. It's a, it sort of films, forms a business out of it. Um, and the relationship they form is like very tender, but there's still this element of the film that's ticking away and leading us to not really trust Oscar Isaac motivations, or if he is even able to form proper motivations given his history. Um, and I really, I mean, above, not necessarily above all else, but I was sort of amused and impressed that they released this on the 20th, 20th anniversary of 9-11. It's such a damning indictment of the legacy that the country has built over the past 20 years, all the violence that it's spawned and all the complicity in that violence that it's encouraged. The fact that uh, a guy like Oscar Isaac's character is just roaming free these days is pretty damning in and of itself and really shows how someone like that, you know, just because they've completed their prison sentence doesn't mean they have it all figured out that they're still making the same sort of mistakes as they go along. Um, between the film being shot in 1661, which is, you know, the art house ratio and uh, the score by Robert Levin Bean, who's uh, Michael Bean's son. Michael Bean did the music for Paul Schrader's great film, um, Light Sleeper. Uh, very, music is very much similar in that realm. Uh, so between those two elements, the film kind of had me from the jump and just kept impressing me as it went along. Uh, yeah, I also, um, liked it more than first reformed and I loved first reformed as well. Um, but it has a, that similar, a similar thing to, to, to first reformed and to, to a lot of Paul Schrader's work, I think of being a political movie about like institutional culpability for, for these, these sorts of things at the same time being a very personal movie about a man wrestling with his 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 guilt and and uh how the things that he's done have uh 
irrevocably altered who he is. Uh, and and it, it's both those things at the same time and not, they're not necessarily harmonious elements. They're often working together. I think that's what you talked, you mentioned sure. it being weird. I think that's kind of where it, the weirdness comes from is that, that like, uh, almost like, um, what's it called when like two magnets, uh, that, Oh, sure. When they're, you put them in, they try to push away from each other. The, 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 a lot of the movie feels like, um, is it trying to say, cause you've got the one character, the, um, is it, it's Ty Sheridan, Ty Sheridan right? yeah. who clearly believes that like, okay, the higher ups are responsible for this. And, and, and Oscar Isaac, who's like taking his personal responsibility on himself. And there's, uh, you see that, uh, that push and pull, um, in, throughout the movie. Yeah. I also, I also loved the guard counter. Excellent. Uh, number seven is, uh, Ryosuke Hamaguchi's wheel of fortune and fantasy. Um, uh, drive my car is not on my top 10 list. I liked it a lot, but for me, wheel and fortune and fantasy wheel of fortune and fantasy was really, uh, speaking to me on a much grander level. Um, so Hamaguchi's a fascinating director. I first got introduced to him through his five hour film, happy hour. Um, and then drive my car is a three hour film. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is a two-hour film that has three stories in it. Um, so he is very loose in terms of what he feels is appropriate movie length and appropriate length for a story. Um, and refreshingly, these are stories that really talk to each other without being like directly overlapping or anything. You could very well view them separately, but I think the way that they work together are very wise and measured and um, very attuned and refreshing. Um, the first story, I don't want to give away anything about too much of them because there's some very clever kind of twists of sorts or reversals or reveals that happen in the course of them. Um, the first story is essentially about two women who, uh, have very different perceptions of a single man and, uh, the way those kind of play out over the course of a night or two. Uh, the second story is about a student who convinces his lover to fake a sex scandal with a professor who's failing him. And the way that all three of their relationships evolve over a short period of time. And then the third story, the one that I think has gotten the most acclaim, understandably, is about two women who meet randomly and recognize each other from high school. They're all sort of about uh, people playing certain roles and how the way others, I think, perceive us changes the way we behave in certain circumstances. So, you know, how you might behave amongst your friends is different than how you might behave with your family or with people you new for 20 years or people you just met, regardless of how close you are to any given people, you sort of have a different way of being. And the film is much more aggressive than that in terms of uh, at any given point, people know that they're putting up a false front or they know they're withholding something, but it very much gets at kind of the role uh, that, you know, I was going to say masks, but masks are very prevalent in society right now, but uh, the way that certain personas take on uh, different roles and reveal different things about uh, ourselves, even if we think we're hiding something, we might actually be revealing something else entirely. Um, I would do want to call it the third story, not only because it is certainly the most touching of the three and kind of clarifies a lot of the thematic elements that have been going on in the other two, but it was also, so the sort of architecture, uh, the background of the setting in which it takes place is that there was some huge like internet virus that caused the world to just shut down the internet. It became too dangerous for the internet to operate because it was too easy to steal people's personal information. It just became a huge security risk. So everything shut down. And so society has regressed to just using uh, more analog forms of communication. And it 
really in an accidental way because he wrote that story before the pandemic hit, but became this incredibly moving reflection on the past two years um, as a reversal. So whereas our experience in the past few years has been super isolated, we can only communicate with each other over Zoom meetings like this. Um, here, they can only communicate face to face. And there's still the same kind of cutoffs that happen, you know, certain people uh, in work sectors weren't able to continue doing their jobs, um, but got different benefits as a result of that. People are kind of refining their way through life with this kind of foundational element removed from it. And, um, you know, whereas a film like Bad Luck Bang is a very aggressively uh, pandemic era film, something like the third section of Wheel of Fortune Fantasy becomes like a sort of um, more tepid reaction, not tepid, but more subtextual reaction to the moment. Uh, I'll mostly keep my thoughts to myself because listeners will have just heard me talk about this movie on the movie journal, uh, the most recent movie journal. But um, uh, I, I did want to point out um, in the like little uh, text that the, the the third one you're talking about having taken place in like a an alternate present where the where the internet has been shut down or whatever. I found it interesting that the, the the text describing that happening goes out of its way to mention that at the point the story takes place, no one is sure yet whether this is a temporary change. Oh yeah, or like because because that also I think uh, uh, speaks to the the deep pandemic anxiety of like is this the new normal or will we get back to normal? You know, yeah, they're canceling Sundance again, that sort of thing. Um, but I and then I will also say because obviously I've got I keep teasing i've got two months until i have to firm up my top 10 list but i will say that wheel of fortune and fantasy also ranks higher than drive my car for me but i did love both movies right on all right uh number six let's take a turn towards some more mainstreamy stuff uh edgar writes last night in soho which i certainly was not expecting to love as much as i did um, for me when i discovered edgar Wright, same time as everyone else you know saw Shaun of the dead it was right at the end of high school um my senior year and i was completely obsessed i watched that and spaced over and over and over again it was a huge huge film for me um when they did like a little road show of hot fuzz before it came out they kind of toured around the country to various art house theaters i was there for that got my space disc signed by simon Pegg. um and Scott Pilgrim, you know, I'm huge. You know, that movie came out when I was uh, 24. So it was definitely speaking to the whole, to that whole time of being a millennial and very much voice of a generation kind of stuff. I found his work to be kind of diminishing returns ever since. Um, you know, I liked uh, At World's End and did not really care for um, Baby Driver that much. I thought it was really... The, the World's End. Right. There were like 500 World's End movies that year, and I never remember which order the various words go in. And World's End is the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, right? Yes, that's right. (laughs) Which I have seen more recently and do like more than uh, the World's End. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I love them both. Both great movies. (laughs) Um, So, and just between that and between him switching into a full-on horror genre here, I, I wasn't sure he could get rid of his kind of innate cleverness enough to really embrace kind of a full-on horror picture show. And I, I think he completely does here. Um, fundamentally, there's just a lot of stuff on here that I just really get off on. Uh, that whole sequence where there... So it's about a woman who... A young woman who's going to fashion school in London, um, living in the Soho neighborhood. And... 
uh, has a great affection for the 1960s. And then she falls asleep one night and wakes up in the 1960s. And she's sort of following slash um, taking on the role of a young woman in that time and perceiving the air, at least through her vision. Um, even if sometimes she's embodying her, sometimes she's kind of standing outside of her. It's very much like a dream in which you're kind of participating in events, not completely in control of them, and sometimes just observing them. So the first sequence where she goes into the past and that song, You're My World, is playing in the background. She starts it kind of on cheap record player. And then that's when the film takes over in the surround sound channels and just envelops the auditorium. And uh, Thomas McKenzie, who plays the young woman, is walking down the stairs and gradually perceiving herself to be Anya Taylor-Joy. And there's all these multi-mirrored effects going on and then the song transitions to be a live singer and like that is completely my shit i love huge directorial swings like that and there are a number of things like that that edgar wright is just letting loose on an aesthetic level that's just totally thrilling um i also think it's a lot more subversive and interesting than people are making it out to be i think people are kind of writing off the ending which i'll get to in a second without spoiling things um writing off the ending is far more simplistic than it is but along the way, there's some really subversive uses of kind of classic hits. There's a lot of music in this film, um, which I've been listening to constantly. It's a great, great playlist. Um, just the fact that uh, later on in the film, Elliot, that's the young girl's name that Thompson McKenzie plays. She starts getting kind of haunted by these ghosts. And at one point when she's being chased by them, he sets it to always something there to remind me, which is kind of darkly <laughs> funny. Um, and then he uses Land of a Thousand Dances, which is a total banger as just a nightmare song while Sandy is going out night after Sandy is the girl in the past who Ellie is kind of following as Sandy goes out night after night being preyed on men. The Thousand Dances being very much just like night after night of going at dances and each one of them more miserable than the last. And then uh, the ending, which again, I'll be vague about, but I, I think it uh, I think it's even more subversive than right is necessarily intending it for, to be because it kind of presents a resolution and emotional catharsis where it's actually uh, Ellie becoming more and more deeply associated with the past in a dangerous way um, and kind of speaks to, I think, a tendency a lot of us have, which is once we've decided who a victim in a given situation is, we can forgive almost anything. Um, and I think there's something kind of disturbing about that and kind of dark in the way in the happy way in which uh edgar wright starts to present it as it reaches its final minutes um yeah so that's as as clarifying as i can be without uh, giving it all away yeah i think you just because i liked last night in soho i think you just talked me into liking it a little bit more um but uh uh yeah, uh, I will definitely, here's how, I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise. It's in a great movie. There's like, we, this will definitely come up this movie when Tyler and I and Sean do our now annual needle drops episode yeah. in late nice. February. But the like three that I have on my, you named like four or five songs. The three that I have on my list aren't even in. That's how many needle drops. Yeah. There's a lot great of these. needle <laughs> drops there are in, in this movie that I, that I, are. uh, yeah, I have more than you even mentioned. Oh, is, sorry. Pu is puppet on a string. One of them? No, no, Oh man. That was another moment where I was like, yes, this is, <laughs> this is working for me. Um, all right. Uh, where the hell am I? Number five. Uh, this is the one I probably have the least to say about because I've only seen it once and it's a fairly simple film in some ways, um, at least presentationally. It's Celine Sciamma's uh, Petite Maman. Um, I 
also liked uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire, her last film and kind of the one that made her um, a lot. Um, I, we talked about this on the AFI Fest episode, yeah, we did. but there's a, a certain showiness to it that is at what's impressive and a little like, yeah, OK, that's cool. Um, <laughs> but uh, Petit Bermond is a super accomplished, very confident film in its simplicity. It's a, like 70 minute film, maybe 75 minutes about uh, a young girl who um, her grandmother just died and she and her parents go move into the grandmother's house to kind of clean it out and clean up and all that stuff you have to do after someone passes away. Um, and then becomes a window into her family's history and just learning a great deal about um, the world in which she comes from through a very clever device that I, I will not uh, specify further here. Um, but it's just such a, a lovely film about childhood. I mostly do not care for movies about childhood. I, I don't know. I, maybe I just don't <laughs> think about my childhood enough and just don't care. Um, but in general, films about children are just like, okay, next. So I, I wasn't expecting to love this one as much as I do, but it it's so imaginative in its conceit and specifically textured to this family. And just every element of it is so well put together. It's beautifully shot. Um, Claire Mathon returns, same cinematographer's portrait of Lady on Fire. So not too surprising that it looks as good as it does. She also shot, I was looking this up yesterday, Stranger by the Lake, Atlantics and Spencer. So she's a hell of a cinematographer. And just to see this much talent on what is, you know, architecturally a fairly simple story and this much emotion drawn out of it. Um, I was just incredibly moved by it. And it's one I saw on like a terrible screener copy too. I wasn't expecting uh, to be so blown away by it aesthetically. Um, oh, you did. So you didn't, I forgot that you didn't see it in the theater. At AFI no, I did not. Like I, did. Uh, I wish I had now. Yeah. Um, yeah. We talked about an AFI fest and you, you, you said you made a comparison that um I've since heard other people also make of comparing it to the red balloon of being like oh, a sure. movie that is like not necessarily what you think of as a kid's movie, but could definitely pass as a kid's movie of being like, it's what 71 minutes long or something like that. And it's about like, uh, like, you know, cute, like young tykes or, or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, uh, it, it has that feeling of, uh, you could, you could show this to uh, a kid uh, as long as they speak French or read subtitles. Yeah. Or young enough to not, not understand anything. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, number four is Emma Seligman Shiva baby. Um, I got to shout out uh, my lovely wife, Julie, for introducing me to this film. She picked this out of, so we saw this last year or sorry, two years ago in late 2020 at one of the many film festivals that was screening online. I think this was Outfest specifically. Um, didn't watch anything else as part of that festival. She was just like, this movie looks great. We should totally see it. And it was totally great. And I'm so glad we saw it. I've seen it again since. And usually, you know, there's a couple films on this list that I considered after first seeing them because I found them super funny but kind of revisiting them later, didn't find them to be as engaging in that regard. I watched this again and could not stop laughing all over again at exactly the same things I laughed at the first time. Um, Fred Melamed's finally seeing a tray of desserts and going, ooh, desserts, <laughs> and wandering off. Just the best. Um, yeah, Fred Melamed's awesome, friend of the show, and uh, great in the movie. And it's funny in a way that just keeps twisting the knife of discomfort. So it, the film has been most frequently described as kind of about a young woman who's working as a sugar baby, um, which like, I'm unclear about the designations of various sex work. Um, I'm taking the film at, at its term. Essentially she does have sex for money and they kind of put her up in this nice apartment. Um, but and she has 
one client. I think that's the difference between a sugar baby and a prostitute. I thought so too. But then we see later in the film, her getting notifications on an app saying like, let's meet up. Oh, I must have missed that. Okay. Because that's how another character fun. (laughs) That's how another character finds out about her doing this work is they send notifications on her front phone. So again, uh, I'm not trying to like argue with anyone's definitions. I just don't understand. Um, but anyway, yeah. so it's a, she meets one of her clients at a Shiva service. Um, unexpectedly, it turns out that he uh, used to work for her father and she's just kind of been dragged along as a family event um, rather humorously. I don't think the film ever clarifies who the Shiva is for. Um, and there's a lot of uh, repeat questions about why they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's really a collision of everything that this young woman, Danielle, played by Rachel Sennett, is going through. It's her strained relationship with her ex-girlfriend, who was a childhood of friends that they became kind of involved in high school and become estranged since then. Uh, it's about her aimlessness as she approaches college graduation, her body image issues, all this stuff coming down to bear on this one event inside of a, again, very short film, definitely less than 80 minutes. Um, and I really can't remember the last debut feature that managed an ensemble this large, there's easily a dozen roles that have like a definitive distinct as- uh, effect on the film. And every one of them comes up fleshed out specifically acted and given a lot of thought and care to them. Um, like I said, with lost daughter, I feel like most debut features are contentious focus on one or two actors. That's enough for their concern, but uh, Seligman really <laughs> gives a lot of attention to every corner of this world which is all the better to bear on kind of the anxiety written effect it's having on Danielle. Uh, someone on Twitter accurately uh, described the film. Well, at least from my perception as uh, uncut gem for hot Jewish sluts. Um, <laughs> and it has the same kind of sense of just pervasive anxiety and dread that every interaction will just make life a little bit worse for her. Um, and yeah, I mean, above all, it is just incredibly funny. Yeah, it's great, but uh, it's also been forever since I saw it. Not quite as long as you, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's great and very funny. Um, and uh, Glee's Diana Agron is uh, has a uh, is one of those crucial uh, roles. I love to see I love to see uh, Quinn from Glee uh, showing up. <laughs> Big fan of oh, I can't think of she was in some terrible blockbuster like the Fourth Man or the Fourth. Guy. I am number four. I am number four. Yeah, with, Big guy, uh, number four fan with Alex Pettifer, right? That sounds about right. What uh, happened to that guy? I, I think he's he like, still around, but he was. He, I kept I kept seeing him in things that were meant to be like, here we go, and then it just never like never basically. happened. But he's like exactly, and he was officially our lead in Magic Mike. Yes, yeah, and I think that's like there were stories. I think that he later copped to of him being like uh, very difficult ah. on, on Magic Mike and maybe other things, and I think maybe. Maybe the reason he, this is me just speculating. Maybe the reason he copped to it is because the stories of his behavior is, started costing him work. And that's why we sure. don't see him in things. But um, uh, yeah, I've not seen him in anything in uh, quite some time. Um, I did mean to mention where these films are available. Most of them so far have been VOD or coming soon to theaters. Um, but Shiva Baby, you can just watch on HBO Max. So I know a lot of people subscribe to that. So it's easily accessible there. All right. Number three is uh, definitely a film that was at one time my number one. Uh, Jacques, I can never know his name. Joachim Trier's The Worst Person in the World. Um, this was another film we talked about. Well, it's Scandinavian, so it's probably more of a, 
a yo like oh yeah so it's called like yokim yokim trier something like that yoakim something like that sounds good okay uh another film we talked about from afi fest um this will be in a more wide release it did you know kind of a qualifying run but it'll come out in theaters more properly next month um just a super invigorating portrait of the present it I'm not going to say it's as good as like a La Dolce Vita, but it gave me the same sensation as La Dolce Vita of having these kind of isolated chapters that kind of form a whole portrait without necessarily connecting the precise space between the two. There are some threads that are left kind of unresolved, some that come back at the very end of the film and some that kind of carry on through the course of it, Um, but just kind of give a way to view um, the course of this young woman's life um, who becomes kind of a stand-in for a lot of, I think, anxiety for people around her age, which is frankly around my age. Um, she uh, takes place over th- three or four years. I think she roughly from 25 to 30, I think she'd say she is. Um, and so she, uh, she's, um, she talks about turning 30 in the movie. So I think. Right. But I'm trying to remember when that is. I, That's I like one of like the middle was, chapters. Yeah. So I feel like she's late twenties, early thirties for okay. most of the movie. Okay. okay. That was um, important, right? Super important. Um, yeah. It's told in 12 chapters in the prologue. The prologue is a super fast, super funny um, narration showing as she's gone through school, switching majors constantly, can't decide what she wants to do. And it kind of is a clever way to introduce the fact that, yeah, this movie is going to be dramatic. It's about relationships building up, falling apart. Um, but it's also going to have a lot of great humor in it, which it totally does. And there are film, there are sequences in it that mix the two totally expertly. There's a breakup scene that's unbelievably moving and also hilarious um, from time to time. It has one of the sexiest scenes I've seen in all in certainly all year, maybe in years, um, that has no sex in it at all. It's explicitly about two characters trying not to cheat on their respective significant others and trying to do everything they can that doesn't technically qualify as cheating, um, but is just so romantic. Um, It's got others that are pretty much throwaway jokes. You know, there's a chapter titled uh, Oral Sex in the Age of Me Too. That's just about her writing an essay titled that. Um, And yeah, I mean... I guess without giving away where it ends up, which is a much more melodramatic turn that I understand. I understand why people aren't as on board with it. Those who didn't care for the film, but I think it works very well and was very moving. Um, Yeah. The film just had me from the opening shot. Literally the opening shot is a complete stunner and I was uh, totally thrilled with it. I, uh, again, I'll uh, hold my tongue for the most part because listeners will have heard me We'll have just heard me talk about it on the uh, movie journal because it'll probably be the last movie I talk about because it's and the I, last movie I've watched. And I know right if now. you liked it. Uh, it is <laughs> monumental. Okay. Yeah. And, and espe- I mean, it's like, especially as someone who's been um, a Yo- Joachim Trier agnostic. I haven't seen, hmm. I haven't seen Oslo August 31st. I know that's like, Oh, you would dig uh, it. Th- yeah. That's supposed to be the big one, but I had seen louder than bombs and didn't care for it. And then I liked Thelma. So I was like, all right, but this is, doesn't feel like either of those movies um, in, 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 in most ways, but uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I like louder than bombs more than, more than you. Um, I wasn't as into Thelma, but this is much more similar to also August 31, I think. Um, 
or reprise um, his first two films. So I definitely recommend you go back to check yeah, those out because they're much, much better than his last two films. Even though I, I definitely would say the worst person in the world is his best film so far. It's his most ambitious and I think most accomplished in a lot of ways. And there's something about the fact that it centers around a woman that has a certain dynamic to it. Um, the reprise and also August 31 are very male films, which um, is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it, it, it adds a different kind of dynamic and perspective to it. He also, he co-wrote the script with another guy, but they kind of ran it by the lead act- actress whose name I will summarily butcher uh, something like Renette Rensby. Um, they kind of ran it by her for, to kind of get a pass on getting her perspective, seeing if she would express things differently. And so it, it's a, a good reflection on what the right kind of actor can bring to a role. I mean, she's giving for my money, the performance of the year, in the lead role here accomplishing so much like i said for the film shifting tones for her to center her character that well um and she's not a first-time actress but she's never had a role this big before so mm. it's really impressive and i look forward to seeing more from her uh, and i'm always happy to see anders danielson lee if that's how you say uh, his name who was in uh this movie and and bergman island this uh this year well speaking of which holy shit bergman island whoa holy shit what a fantastic transition. Um, I know. Nailed it. Uh, I had a very kind of David Bax attitude going into this, which was <laughs> like, I love Mia Hansen Love. I think she's one of the best filmmakers working today. Of course, Ingmar Bergman is my favorite filmmaker of all time. So I was like, all right, film. <laughs> let's see. Don't know about this. Um, so, wait, okay, hang on now. I'm trying. To, okay. So you're saying that the David Bax approach is skepticism or like well, well, what or he's re- pessimism? What, what he's saying, well, first off, <clears throat> the thing that he's saying is that Scott listens to me more than you do. Uh, <laughs> For sure. um, but I have repeatedly said that the more something feels tailored to my oh yeah. uh, yes, yes. Exactly. the more suspicious I yes, absolutely. Yeah, I am of it. It is, uh, it is I think, a, a good way to approach things, yes. Yeah. Um, but I really got kind of that thrill you get when you hear like there's a cover of a song you love by an artist you love, but um, you don't think it can add anything new, but it, then it does. And you're like, oh shit, this is just as good as the original. And, but gives you something yeah. different from that. So like, like when Scarlett Johansson did those Tom Waits covers, I hear you. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm referring to. Um, so this is a film about uh, two coupled filmmakers. I don't know if it's clarified that they're married. The reason I'm suspicious that they are is because it's, very nakedly based on Mia Hansen Love's own relationship with uh, Olivia Isaias, um, and they were never married. Um, it, Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth play the couple here, um, and they are traveling to the island of Faro, which is where Ingmar Bergman lived and worked for most of, uh, at least the second half of his life. I think he finally moved there in the 60s, and I'm trying to think of how old he would have been by the end of it, but I'd say around half of his life. Um, and in the years since his death, it's kind of turned to like a weird, tiny amusement park in honor of Ingmar Bergman. Um, it has this annual, or at least pre-pandemic, had an annual kind of Bergman festival where people from all over the world come together to gather and discuss his films. And I didn't wasn't aware of what the film depicts a Bergman safari where they hop on a school bus and tour around locations on Faro where people, where they shot different scenes from his films and kind of give some context to that. And the uh, locals are as you, one would expect, different levels of interested in the legacy Bergman has left on the island and the fact that people only come there for him. 
Um, but Hanson Love gives a completely different vision of Faro than Ingmar Bergman ever did. For Bergman, it was dark and depressing and horrible, and that's why he loved it. But it's this like glorious summer film of like people going out swimming and eating in the sun and uh, having these great meals outdoors, and it's very like lovely and gorgeous. And uh, you know, Tim Roth kind of when Vicky Creeps comments on this, Tim Roth jokingly says, "Try, try this place in fucking January," <laughs> um, which is a, one of Tim Roth's many great kind of pithy lines. Um, and then it has this whole narrative conceit where it completely switches stories. It goes into a film that uh, Vicky Creeps is developing and kind of reveals the shooting of that in some ways, uh, starring Mio Vasakaska. Um, and rather than f- feel like it was two ideas that me, Handsome Love just kind of mashed together, it feels like both are kind of natural extensions of the other and a great way to explore the thematic concerns, the emotional concerns that she has and everything else that she's gone through. I mean, Mia Hansen Love's films have always been deeply personal, often very nakedly autobiographical, either about her or in the case of Eden, um, it's directly based on her brother's life. Uh, this is by far her most autobiographical in terms of the details of it um, and loses none of kind of the personal touches and the outsider perspective and the way she interrogates her characters and lets them enjoy life and suffer a little bit. And uh, it's just a really lovely, totally accomplished film that gave me so much more than I was uh, expecting from it. Uh, Yeah. I also um, absolutely loved it. And um, it is also, I'm not going to spoil my my list because it hasn't been finalized yet, but it is also in close proximity to the worst person in the world because they do both feel like movies that are, um, that that I, I guess and this is something that I associate with Bergman is the an understanding of the world in which the the cerebral and the physical or the somatic exist at the same time. You can't sure. like so you can't separate one. So the uh, there's like an irony to the fact that this um, that there this couple has like you're seeing maybe some cracks in there. Not I guess not marriage. I think I might maybe just did the like american assumption of sure. like oh look they're together and they have children they must be married <laughs> I, I was told when i was seven years old that's how it works <laughs> um but you see the 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 cracks uh forming at the same time that they're in this like beautiful sun uh sunbathed uh sun dappled uh location uh speaking of locations i'm sure you're more of a way more of a bergman head than i am the biggest bergman head i know um so I enjoy it. Like there are locations in the movie that are specifically called out. Like this is the house from scenes for a marriage. And this is yeah. the, like the jetty or whatever from through a glass darkly. Um, but I also like, I also was like, wait, that's, that's the house from passion of Anna, Right. Like I, I saw, I feel like I saw other things. Did you catch other things, other Bergman references that weren't called out by the movie? Yeah. I feel like I saw some, this is, sounds really vague, but some specific rock formations that sound, looked familiar from persona um, houses. I'm just bad with architecture houses. I'm just like, it's a building, whatever. But doesn't like passion of Anna literally begins with, um, uh, uh, Max Vanciato, like working on his rooftop. So it starts with the shot of the house. If I'm yeah. remembering passion of honor, right. So I'm pretty sure that, that we, we see that house in the movie in Berlin Island as well. All right. All right. Um, oh, also a great clothes movie. Everyone here, super well-dressed, uh, looks like a lot of fun to hang out in those clothes in that environment. Yeah. All right. 
number one, West Side Story. No surprise for anyone who knows me at all. I have been a completely bowled over by this movie. I've seen it four times in theaters already. I'm probably going again next week. Um, I keep waiting for it to run its course with me, but I keep wanting to see it again as soon as it finishes. Um, there's a lot of reasons why it's my favorite film of the year. Um, the, maybe the biggest is that I just think the musical in general is kind of maybe not the ultimate form of cinema, but a place where it definitely reaches its fullest potential. And it's so incredibly rare that it does. I, you know, I've been consistently going to movies for 20 years. I haven't seen a musical this good in that entire time. I haven't seen the musical form explored this uh, dynamically and this elaborately in that entire time. They're usually such, they're usually job shoved off to music video directors who cut too much, who don't have a sense of the elegance of the human body and how it can interact with the camera and how it can tell the story along with it. They're, you know, I think of like the Rob Marshall school of cutting where it's half shooting the behind the scenes vision of the movie and half giving you the movie itself. Uh, this is very much musical geared towards the camera. I, you know, I'm coming from a place of thinking that Stanley Donnan is one of the 10 greatest directors of all time. So for someone to make a great musical is as good as it gets for me. Um, and beyond that, you know, so I'm watching the film, I'm feeling the rhythm that Spielberg's introducing, you know, right from the jump and the opening kind of uh, sharks versus jets number where the people are dancing through the streets and the camera's gliding around. I'm like, okay, all right. I mean, I'm impressed. I wasn't expecting to love this film because of how frequently I'm disappointed in musicals these days. Um, but I was like, okay, you got my attention. And then we get to the gym and he's really cutting loose and operating on a different level. And the way the characters are interacting and introduced throughout the whole kind of tango number and then each other from across the gym and the they're being spotlighted both directly in the line is absolutely on fire throughout the film they're seeing each other and the lights are spotlighting them the performers are moving in such a way that highlights them without kind of like forming a circle or anything but it's just for the sheer movement our eyes are still drawn to them and it's come on behind her and i'm seeing something from Spielberg that I haven't seen him do. I, I don't know if ever, which is just watch two people fall in love. Um, Spielberg for all his many talents typically does not do love stories very well at all. Um, has almost no interest in sex or um, kind of emotional attractions or anything like that. Romance is not his forte, but here people, there's just two young people completely earnestly falling in love. I get the criticisms people have had about Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler's chemistry. Um, I don't know that I agree. I think a lot of young people have kind of uneasy feelings about love and senses of chemistry and senses of building themselves up and posing for each other and trying to be a certain way and getting caught off guard by the way that love makes you uneasy and makes you uncomfortable and makes you vulnerable in, in certain ways. I, I get that Elgort's a little stiff, but again, I'm a big musical fan. I'm used to the occasional stiff performer and lead role. It doesn't really bother me that well, that much. Um, but I also know this type of guy who's like, like I said, posing for people in a certain way and is using love kind of as an extension of his own needs. I buy that Tony's going through something new and different in his life that he can't really give himself over to and is still trying to remain the cool, tough guy. Um, and I absolutely love Rachel Zegler in the film. I think she's incredible and has a magnificent voice and really uh, marries that voice into the dramatic work in a way that uh, 
you know, I don't want to get into too many comparisons with the original West Side Story, both because I love the film and because I love this one a good deal more. I don't want to make it sound like I'm putting that film down, but because uh, Maria was dubbed in the original film, we never got that kind of sense of a continuous character. It's all Rachel Zugler here and she nails it. And I adore Ariana DeBose um, as Anita and David Alvarez as Bernardo and especially Mike Fast as Riff, who's faced, sorry, as Riff, who's so fresh and so invigorating. Um, and every performance here is just super keyed in and super in, uh, invested in the material. And then the more I've seen it, kind of the more I've figured out this whole other layer to it. So the big thing that uh, Tony Kushner added to it is a very concrete reality that whatever the result of these like gang wars is, the entire block is going to be t- torn down. So they're fighting for each other, fighting with each other over a crumbling neighborhood that's going to be demolished, that's going to be useless in a couple of years, but it's still their territory. That's what matters to them. Um, and so they're fighting each other instead of you know, fighting to retain the neighborhood at all. Um, and they're trying to make rent from day to day and trying to make another day, even though there's no future ahead of them. And, you know, frankly, after two years of going to work every day and trying to make the best of pandemic life, going out with friends and going on small weekend trips and trying to make the best of what feels at times like a crumbling, crumbling world and not really, you know, sometimes ignoring that crumbling world, sometimes coming face to face with it, but really focusing in on the moment. I felt like the film captures that same emotional essence and so to see something, you know, as pure and celebratory inflicted as the way they stage America, um, I almost never cry at the movies, but of all scenes, that scene, as soon as it starts and Ariana DeBose is walking down the street with her friends and giving each other that little smile, that scene got me every time. I was a mess during it. Um, <laughs> I don't usually cry at like super sad stuff in movies, but super beautiful, happy, emotional expressions. That's my shit completely. Um, yeah, I completely love West Side Story in a way that I wasn't expecting to in a, a way that most films, I mean, you know, I have a number one film every year that I love, but every now and again, there's one that's a different tier. And this is up there with the master or no home movie. You know, I haven't been this effective, I think by a movie since no home movie at all. And by a mainstream film, I mean, it's been by a film that's gotten, you know, 3000 plus theater release. It's been over a decade since something has been this enrapturing. Um, well, if it makes you feel any better, story. if it makes you feel any better, the film has not done well. Uh, yeah, it's right. done as well as uh, as a, a film with maybe uh, ten theaters. So know. you know it's you depressing. can cling to that if you like. Yeah, it's yeah. depressing. Um, yeah, I've I, I also like West Side Story. I've already aired my little my hangups before. Uh, what I what I what I do want to address is you you. Uh, I'm glad that you have the. Uh, confident to boldly say that you like this movie better than uh, Robert Wise's movie uh, and Jerome Robbins movie. Cause I, I think that's been a big hangup for me is like, it's, it feels like such a sacred cow to me. Cause I <sighs> love that movie so much that I've um, been focused. I, I focused, I think a little bit too much my energy on the things that I don't like as much as uh, the, as, as the earlier uh, version. So I will say, I'll go ahead and say, you know, I like that. Spielberg staged like most of the musical numbers in different locations and, and, and stuff than, than, uh, uh, Robert Wise did. And I will say unequivocally that, uh, the changes made to the song cool, both how it's staged yeah. and where it is in the story, which is a completely different place than it is in Robert Wise's story, uh, is better. It's absolutely better than the 1961 movie. So there you got that out of me. <laughs> 
Oh, another thing is I'm glad they didn't add some bullshit song just to get a best Oscar nomination yes. <laughs> or a best song nomination. They just, yeah. they filmed the play and that's good enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think your list really, because there are, there are movies that I think are amazing that I know you have seen and liked that aren't in your top 10. And yet I don't really have any, I can't like argue with you. That's, that's how it's a strong enough th- year. This has been a very strong year. And I think part of it is because we're getting a year plus worth of movies for sure. You know, that's, that's why it's such a strong it. year. Yeah, I mean, West Side Story was supposed to come out a year same. ago. Yeah. And so 2022 might be the same because we're getting uh, more overflow. So we, we, this might be a uh, uh, two years in a row of uh, a bounty for us, us movie letter, movie lovers, but yeah. Um, fantastic year. Uh, and a uh, great list. I think I had, I seen everyone. I think I'd seen all of your top 10. Oh, wild. Usually I stump you with something. Because, uh, yeah, I think I had something to say about it. Yeah, I think you're right. Looking back yeah. through it. Yeah, well, you stumped me with PBT chat. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know about that one. So you, I that almost was included mention. a uh, f- French documentary about a guy in isolation watching 400 movies and uh, narrating little clips of them. Uh, great movie. Just don't well, think I'll scream. Just don't think I'll scream. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, um, this is fun. This is uh it's fun because I love talking about all the great movies that, um, uh, that have come out recently, but also it's fun. Cause this is kind of us kicking off. This is the kickoff, right? Yeah. This is kicking off like two and a half months of us wrapping up the end of the year. I mean, there'll be not every episode, you know, we'll be doing, uh, a few, it'll be a while before we get back to podcasts about the end of the year. It'll be till we, we do needle drops, um, in in late february but we should have uh i hope i'm not over promising we we should have um the website should have uh, scott mentioned doing a written version of his list we should have some other lists from other contributors um so there should be between the podcast and the website battleshipretention.com um there there should be uh um, a lot of content. Um, I just did it. I, I said content. God damn it. It's, uh, yeah. Um, it's hard not to. It's like when I say whether or not something is a thing, I, I like have said so, yeah. so long resisting that, but it's just become part of the fabric of, uh, the lexicon, the lexicon so much so that a fucking character says in Spielberg's West side story, that's not even a thing. And I was like, what people weren't talking that way back then, but it doesn't matter. It's just, it's just how people talk now. And it just seems like it's i gotta stop fighting it anyway uh there'll be a lot of stuff about the end of the year um uh on on the podcast and some of it we'll do uh the bps on the on the patreon check out patreon.com slash battleship pretension uh in the meantime you can find reviews of a lot of these movies that that scott talked about today at battleship pretension.com you can follow me on David on Twitter at Davy pretension. Also check out my other podcast. The one where I met your mother, where my wife, Natalie and I watch an episode of friends and an episode of <laughs> how I met your mother. Uh, uh, every week, this, this most recent one, we, 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 uh, got to, I guess, spoilers for, for people, uh, who are even more in the dark than me about friends. The episode where Rachel and Ross first kiss, uh and then we got to one of the all-time funniest how i met your mother episodes which is called swarley uh, um yeah. even i know <laughs> about that one yeah uh so that was a that was a really good uh really fun episode to to talk about you can email me david battleship retention david battleship retention.com tyler is on twitter at tyler pretension email him at tyler battleship retention.com what do you have to plug tyler nothing and scott where can people find more 
thoughts about these movies. Um, uh, I'm sure you'll be tweeting about the next time you go to see West Side Story. <laughs> oh, of course. Something new will pop out. It's a multi-textured film. Yeah. Uh, well, then, you know what's going to come up next time you see West Side Story? Omicron. You are going to get COVID. <laughs> There's nobody at the movies. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, that's the safest place. Is, yeah, it's is that why you've been seeing West Side Story so many times? Because you know. Yeah, complete isolation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying, by the way, when I say that, I, I should say, I'm not trying to bash the movie at all. I, I don't like anybody who says like, it's like, oh, well, it's a bomb. It's like, who gives a shit? Like, if it's great, I mean, obviously you want it to do well, but at the same time, like, that's not a value judgment on on the film that I'm pointing. No, out. I know. The, the only drag with it is it's such a great audience film. The first time I saw it was at a mm. full, like, industry screening and everyone yeah. was, like, on fire at the end nice. of it and couldn't stop talking about it. And, like, that's also always super exciting, especially for a musical. And people do the involuntary thing of, like, clapping at the numbers, which is dumb, but you can't <laughs> help doing it because you're so energized. Um, I can help with Good for you. Um, no, it, the screens I've been to have been fairly well attended. They haven't okay. been the emptiest theaters I've been to by far. Um, okay. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, me and one other woman. We were just having the time of our life. I thought I could go mask off for the movie because I was like, just Scott. But this other woman had to come in, ruin it all. And she sat five and a half feet away from me. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. I was getting my measuring tape out. Like, oh, shit. Uh, uh, sorry, oh, yeah. did you say oh, your Twitter? No, or I didn't. Uh, Twitter rail of tomorrow. I ran down my favorite discoveries of the last year. I picked out like 52 movies and just kind of listed them with some screen caps. Uh, they're all fine movies. Um, and try to post reviews frequently ish on Letterboxd. I, I'll post, like I said, written version of this list for Battleship Pretension. I'm also considering maybe doing a list of the best French films of the year. I've seen all but five of the films that have gotten theatrical releases, as far as I can tell from my research. So if I can see those last five in the next couple of weeks, I'll, uh, I'll run down a list of them. That'd be exciting. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, thank you, Scott, for uh, blessing us with your top 10 list. Oh, thanks always for having me. I enjoy putting this together. Even it caused me some stress this week of like, oh, I can't leave this off. Oh, well I did. Oh, well. <laughs> um, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.